Hello, and welcome to The SIP, the Smart Institute podcast, where we talk about all the things that media and communication bring to our doorstep. In each episode, we are joined by leading researchers and doctoral students from the Department of Communication and Journalism at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who will dive into an intimate conversation about their academic research. In this episode, we break down the issue of online political participation in various networked platforms such as WhatsApp, Facebook, and Twitter with our guests Dr. Neta Kligleo-Vilenchik and Dr. Maya DeVries-Kedem. Stick around. Take a sip to think about. Hi, Maya. Hi, Neta. Good morning. Good morning. I'm excited to be here in our radio station. We haven't been here yet. Yes, it's a uh, first time for me as well. And we were even able to find the room. So we already deserve a prize for that, I think. Completely, yes. <laughs> uh, let's first introduce who we are so everyone knows who they're listening to. So I'll uh, introduce Maya to you all. Um, so Maya is a lecturer here at the Department of Communication um, and she finished her PhD About a year ago, I remember when you got the announcement about receiving the final approval. That was exciting. Uh, her PhD thesis focuses on the role of social media in conflict zones, focusing on East Jerusalem Palestinians. Uh, and now Maya is a postdoc fellow uh, at the University College of London, although she's here with us. I'm Woo-hoo! here. I'm here. I, I cannot leave Jerusalem. <laughs> the wonders of global society. Uh, the project she's working on uh, is around the anthropology of smart aging. And in this project, Maya is conducting a long-term ethnography in a Palestinian community located in East Jerusalem. Um, and she's uh, exploring digital aspects in the lives of the elderly who live under an intractable ethno-political conflict. And we're all looking forward to read this fascinating ethnography when it will be published as a book in 2021. Hopefully. Hopefully, of course, of course it will. Uh, in general, Maya's research focuses on digital communication, participation of marginalized groups, and political activism in intractable conflict areas. Um, and she's not only an academic, Maya's real passion or additional passion is documentary cinema. And she produced several short documentaries about water in the West Bank and about Jerusalem. I still need to see those. Oh yeah, let's, let's do a screening. <laughs> Sounds okay. good. Uh, thank you, Neta, for this lovely introduction. Thank you. Um, okay, so Neta is uh, an assistant professor in the, in the Department of Communication and Journalism. She joined the department in 2015 after completing her PhD at the University of Southern California. Yep, USC. USC. <laughs> she worked with Professor Henry Jenkins, with whom she also co-authored a book by any media necessary, The New Youth Activism. Her research revolves around social media and political participation and expression, especially in the context of youth. Well, old people, young people, let's see where we, where we go ahead with yep, that. We already see in, some interesting uh, points of contrast. In our conversation. Mm-hmm. She has researched how politics plays out in a range of social media, including Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, and even TikTok. Cool. And recently, she has been included in Globe's magazine's 40 Under 40 list. Wow. That's an <laughs> achievement. That was really cool to read that post about you in Globe's. Thanks, really, Maya. Really, really impressive. Thank you. I appreciate it. So today, what we'll both talk about is about how social media shape political participation and political expression. And this is a topic that's uh, common both to my research and to Maya's research and to our joint research, uh, which we'll talk about. 
Um, so our conversation will revolve around how people participate and express themselves politically online uh, and how these practices are shaped by a variety of social media platforms. And a uh, continuing point today in our conversation will be the importance of context. Um, so let's talk a little bit first about why context matters. So um, I think often when we talk about social media and politics, we sort of have this idea of what social media does to society, sort of uh, as if it's one phenomenon. But the, the truth is that social media is a very wide phenomenon, which can vary widely. Um, so for instance, Daniel Miller, with whom Maya works, looks at how Facebook differs in different national contexts. One of the things that Daniel Miller finds is that it's not only in different countries, it's not only that people do different things with Facebook, but rather they perceive Facebook itself in a wholly different way. Um, so uh, social media can really vary in different contexts. And in our discussion today, Maya and I will discuss together several aspects of context. One of them is age um, that we've already mentioned. So I look at youth, Maya looks at elderly adults. One is geographical context, and we'll talk quite a bit about East Jerusalem. And one is the political context. Um, and in that sense, it's also important to talk about the uh, national context that we're embedded in. Um, so I've been studying uh, the U.S. context quite a bit ever since my Ph.D. and even now that I'm in Israel. Maya, what is your main context of study? Um, so yes, in my Ph.D. I was focusing on East Jerusalem context. Um which mm -hmm. is the local context. Right. Uh, and in recent years, we've also been studying this local context together. One of the articles we'll talk about today um, focuses on the local East Jerusalem context. Okay, to, so to start us off, let's talk a, a little bit about how we came to research these issues and why we're interested in them. Okay, so actually, I, I, I don't have a BA in communication studies. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Although my PhD is in communication. Um, my BA is in Middle East uh, studies and um, um, politics and government. Um, I finished it in 2006, and quite soon after, I started also uh, MA in conflict resolution stu studies here at the Hebrew University. So... During this MA, I, uh, I took an internship course. And uh, one of the things that I had to do there is to choose an organization to, um, you know, to do the internship in. And it was all related to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I chose to do the internship in Iramim, which is an Israeli NGO who deals with East Jerusalem. This is the main focus. So this is how I started to be aware of, to get to know this area, this territory, which as a Tel Avivian, basically, not hmm. an original Jerusalemite, uh, was, um, I had no idea what's going on there. So this is how I started, actually, um, to get to know East Jerusalem. And uh, this internship was quite successful. And I got a position there for three years. And after finishing there, I came back to the, to the academic world and uh, started to write about East Jerusalem from an academic perspective and from the social media perspective, mm -hmm. which was um, and still is a hot potato yeah. in this area. Right. So I'll talk a little bit about how I got to, um, to my research as well, studying uh, political participation on social media. Um, so my BA is in communication, but my master's thesis was actually in a field that's very far from what I knew I'm doing today. It was around collective memory. 
Um, and I was planning to do my PhD in collective memory as well. But when I came to USC, I worked there with, um, with Henry Jenkins, um, who was a wonderful advisor, and I loved working with him. And um, some of our shared work together touched on the connections between participatory culture and civic engagement. Uh, my case study there was actually quite an interesting one. It revolved uh, around um, a group called the Harry Potter Alliance, which uses metaphors from the Harry Potter content world uh, to get young people involved in um, civic and political engagement. And that was sort of my doorway to think uh, in general about how young people um, find their connections to the political realm. And that often happens on social media. So today I look at both political participation and political expression on a range of platforms and a range of contexts. So Maya, I think when we're talking about how we came to study this and what we're doing now, we've both been researching these topics for several years now. And I'm wondering when you think about um, social media, about political participation, about the East Jerusalem context, what do you see as some main changes that happened during these years, both in terms of social media themselves and how people use them, and also in terms of um, doing academic research on this topic? Mm -hmm. Um, first, maybe it's important just to understand what we actually mean when we talk about East Jerusalem. Yeah. I think it's important for our audience. Mm -hmm. um, so East Jerusalem is the territory that was occupied slash annexed slash united by Israel back in 1967, um, the Six-Day War. Um, and it, until then, it belonged to Jordan, to the Jordanian kingdom. And in 1967, this territory, around 70,000 um, dunams um, and 28 Palestinian slash Arab villages, was all of a sudden part of Israel, part of the, part of the municipal borders of Jerusalem. These people... Uh, receive the legal status of permanent residents. It means that they hold the Israeli ID card, like you and me, but they have uh, some limited rights. For example, they're not allowed to vote to the Israeli parliament, to the Knesset, and they do not hold the Israeli passport. So if they want to travel, for example, whatever, to the States, to London, um, either uh, some of them may use the Jordan passport, depends where, they, where do they go. But if they leave from Ben Gurion Airport, they have to issue La Sepase, which is sort of papers that they have to take with them. Um, so this is really important to understand the political situation uh, in this territory. So even though, even though they're five minutes from here, um, some of their political context and political lives are very different. Very different, yeah. um, in a very extreme way. Yes. Um, uh, it's also important to understand that East Jerusalem, um, in, I would say, until the, the Trump program or the Trump resolution uh, was uh, supposed to be the capital future of the Palestinian state. Um, and uh, so it has also very strong feelings in the Palestinian narrative and also, of course, also for the Jerusalemites, the Palestinian Jerusalemites who lives inside the city. Mm -hmm. um, so, but let's talk about social media and 
why I even started doing that and mm-hmm. what actually changed. So back in 2012, 2013, um, I actually saw on my Facebook uh, profile many, many um, pages, um, some groups, some Facebook groups, and but also heavy individuals writing on Facebook in Arabic, writing about politics, writing about the situation, and also writing about just daily life. And these were Facebook friends you had from your work uh, yeah. at the NGO? Yeah, I had many uh, contacts mm-hmm. online from, uh, from my position in Iramim. And also because I speak Arabic, mm-hmm. I speak the language, and it's a very genuine um, feeling of or part of my identity, I would say, uh, always to search how to communicate or to create a dialogue with the Palestinian side. Yeah. It's something that I grew up with as a child. Mm. And it's just part of my identity. Yeah. So when seeing that on my Facebook profile, I felt, oh my God, there is something here, a new conversation, new channels of communications. You can read what people think. You can feel the, um, um, I, I would say, even the street, the vibes in the street. Uh, and I, find it, I found it fascinating just to delve in and start reading and seeing what's going on there. Then I had a meeting with uh, my advisor, Ifat Maoz, Professor Ifat Maoz. We sat in uh, Cafe Yoshua, hmm. her second office. Yeah. Um, and it was a great meeting because we decided back then Um, that she will be my advisor at the PhD. How exciting. And, yeah, I brought some, uh, I printed some text and I, saw, I, 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 I showed her some uh, Facebook pages and she was super excited about it. And it, we were both very um, happy to do that, to start yeah. doing that together. So, but and let's just say that it's not a field that there was much research about before. Right, or um, still even? Still, I would yeah. say still. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, you have the language barrier. Uh, not many Israelis speak Arabic. Of course, you have people in other places, in Jordan or also in uh, Egypt, also in Ramallah, uh, writing about social media in the Palestinian society, but not a lot. I would say that I had two years, about two years on, until the end of 2014, more or less, Um, that Facebook was a vivid platform um, to be in, yeah. to look for information, to understand. In terms of the political expression of East Jerusalem Palestinians. Yes, is. but yeah. also in terms of writing about just mundane, mundane issues, just mm-hmm. daily life. Yeah. So it was a very flourish, um, mm-hmm. a fruitful environment to study. Yeah. So I started with that, but uh, all of a sudden, The major change that I started to see is that um, people are not writing anymore. And two pages that I followed for, for a very long time, you know, harvesting data from, collecting data from, uh, disappeared. Was that during Tsukaitan uh, operation? Yes, I'm getting there. Yeah. So what actually happened in the summer of 2014 um, is two major uh, events. One of them is the... Uh, kidnap and murdering of the three uh, Israeli soldiers near the city of Hebron. And following that, uh, we had the revenge act here in Bet Hanina, the kidnap and the murdering of uh, Muhammad Abu Khder. That was a little bit before uh, Tzuk Eitan, the Gaza war in 2014, a few weeks before. Um, and even before Tzuk Eitan, these two events 
already started to, um, to be like an alert to people to stop writing on Facebook. It got too political, people got too involved, and slowly but surely, Palestinians started to see that their friends are being arrested due to a post that they write on Facebook. Yeah, so, and I'll only mention that mm-hmm. uh, this was a time when not only Palestinians but also Israelis were becoming quite careful about what they are saying politically online. And we have, for example, our colleague, uh, Nicholas John, uh, who together with Shirat Virgwirstman did uh, a study on unfriending during the 2014 uh, military... Uh, Gaza camp- war, yeah. The, the 2014 Gaza war, they found that, uh, that people unfriended others due to political expression. So yes. this was a time when, in general, in Israel, there was a lot of hesitation about political expression online. People were being fired from their jobs yeah. around uh, political statements that they made on Facebook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so yes, also Israelis were, fi- you know, got fired from their job, but also I would say that the majority of cases was uh, were actually Arab Israelis yeah. getting fired from their jobs right. due, to, due to uh, their posts. Yes. So um, that, then again, we go back to the political context yeah. and, you know, who... Who is actually deciding of what is right or wrong when you when you deal with politics when you write about politics obviously there is a limit when we come to think about hate speech or incitement incitement racism which um, on a personal note if I am allowed to in the summer of 2014 when I read back and forth what's going on in the Facebook pages that I was following um, There were several times that I had to shut down my screen, my computer. Yeah. It was just, as an Israeli, as a Jewish Israeli, uh, it was just too much for me to read. I couldn't. It was too extreme. From the Palestinian side. From the Palestinian yes. side. It was very extreme for me to read. And on the other hand, also on the Israeli side, there were, I would say, very hateful yeah. expressions, both towards Arabic uh, residents and towards even Israelis who are left-winged. Yes. So this summer actually brought Palestinians, specifically in East Jerusalem, but not just, uh, just to stop writing on Facebook. Um, they didn't disconnect, they didn't delete their profile, um, they were there, but not writing. So it was either Facebook pages that are removed by Facebook, but due to um, complaints maybe of ordinary citizens who click the report uh, button of Facebook that uh, some of us know. Um, but maybe, um, I don't know that for sure, um, it's just from conversation that I had with journalists Uh, from East Jerusalem, some of them think and are actually quite sure that it was removed due to a, a collaboration between Facebook and the uh, uh, intelligence forces in Israel. So people stop writing, um, um, and, but still they get, uh, you know, they get all the information they are looking for about cultural events, maybe news from Facebook, etc., but they are not actually bringing themselves Uh, as we all, you know, thought about Facebook as bringing out... The democratic potential exactly. to self-express and to participate politically, to have your voices heard. Exactly. Especially for marginalized communities, there was the hope that it will enable yeah. to hear their voices. Exactly. So yeah. that sort of vanished back then. Yeah. Obviously, it doesn't mean that they don't have a voice. It's just being, being uh, channeled into other platforms. So, and... This is, by the way, a global phenomenon because yeah. we see that people all around the world are moving 
actually moved to WhatsApp, to Instagram, although they belong to Facebook now. But people either prefer to write on other platforms or just write less or maybe just to share more images, to yeah. use more visualizations of their being or their identity. Mm-hmm. But there is a sort of, uh, I would say, a global phenomena of being highly aware of the damages of sharing too many politics online. Yeah, I agree. And I think actually if we... So we started with this local context and the, the microcosm of, of East Jerusalem Palestinians, but I think in a way it foreshadows uh, processes that happened uh, globally. So I think in the literature today, we can, um, if we think about the, the main trend today in, in the study of social media and political participation, there is a focus on what uh, Thorsten Quant calls the dark side of participation. So there's a lot of concern about the role that social media play in democracies, in elections, um, concerns about misinformation, concerns about incivil speech, uh, concerns about hate speech, as you mentioned, uh, concerns about political polarization. And I'd say that in, in the global, um, in terms of the global research, I at least felt that that move, the strong move in the research trends happened uh, around 2016 with the election of, uh, of Trump in the US that sort of really foregrounded uh, these concerns about social media and political participation. And of course, Facebook got a lot of heat. Uh, also, uh, Google and Amazon a little bit, but Facebook got um, yeah. the brunt of the heat in terms of uh, their role in the 2016 election and, and so on. But really, I think when we're t- you're talking now about how um, these things started in Israel, uh, both in Israel and in East Jerusalem in 2015, I think that that sort of foreshadows that, uh, that trend uh, where people... Uh, either are concerned about what they say online, um, maybe uh, prefer to move from, um, from the more mainstream, big public uh, social media like Facebook to more closed platforms like WhatsApp. Uh, and I'll just mention here that um, one of my research projects is a, um, a grant that's uh, funded by WhatsApp to study, um, specifically it's about um, trying to prevent the spread of misinformation on WhatsApp, which is, of course, one of those problems plaguing uh, social media today. Uh, But the methodological aspect here is that it's very difficult to study these private uh, platforms because unlike uh, unlike Facebook, definitely unlike, unlike public Twitter, it's very difficult to get access to these conversations. It's harder to know what's going on there. And so this move of people from open social media to closed platforms uh, also had very clear ramifications for us as researchers yes. studying these areas. I completely agree with you. Um, just to um, to emphasize a small nuance about Facebook, mm-hmm. that a change that I, I also um, saw around 2014, 2015, is that people are, you know, not writing on their feed or on other, you know, um, public pages feeds, uh, rather they prefer to write in closed groups right. that you have on Facebook. Yes. So, for example, you have a very big group called Ask Jerusalem, but... You know, people can write their questions about the Israeli identity card. How do you get uh, whatever? How do you get that? How do we go to the Israeli uh, interior office? Yeah. But, you know, they just the conversation moved to a more closed and, of course, in my opinion, semi-private uh, yeah. platforms yeah. because it's never private. True. Uh, it's important to emphasize unless maybe you write 
on Signal, which in Israel is not that popular, or Telegram, which become maybe more popular. Yeah, and I'll mention that actually my colleague, Ori Tenenboim, and I um, have a conceptual article that we're working on that looks exactly at those semi-private spaces. We call them meso news spaces. So these are spaces where people engage with the news in spaces that are between private and public. Uh, so these closed groups on Facebook, for example, or large WhatsApp groups like the one that I'm uh, studying around political conversation. And I think that people want to move to these groups exactly because of the dissatisfaction with the large social media uh, that we've discussed. Yes, the price is just too high, uh, politically wise, socially wise, uh, the price became too high. And yeah. also I think the lack of trust, if we think about the fake, the fake news era and the, you know, the 2016 US election, which yeah. you raised, and of course the Cambridge Analytics right. story, which you know, to uh, in this regard, yes. turned tables, in my opinion, yeah. among many, many social media users, which is True. basically all of us. Even very highly engaged users. Exactly. I just do want to say that, um, because, because I mentioned this uh, concept of dark, dark side of participation, that I do feel still that my research somewhat goes against this trend. And I actually have a paper uh, where I uh, react to Thorsten Quant's uh, article about the dark side of participation. It's called Why We Should Still Be Looking at Good Participation. Uh, because I still maintain cautious optimism about the potential of social media to enable political voice uh, for youth, for other participants, and to enable positive engagement. And I think that some of that is happening in these what we call meso-news spaces. Uh, so among uh, groups, uh, especially in contexts where people are engaged together with others over time. I think that's where good participation still occurs. Um, so I want to maintain a sense of optimism here. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's always good to be optimistic. <laughs> So as we said, sort of our connecting thread is the question of how political participation and expression is shaped by context. So we talked about one context, an important context, which is the choice of social media platform. Um, and another important context to talk about is age. Uh, this is, I think, where there's the most contrast in our research, uh, because I focus on youth. And Maya, you've been conducting research with older people. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So my, my postdoc, my current, uh, my current project is, uh, is aging with smartphones. Um, I conducted fieldwork for 16 months among old people. Uh, and when I say old, uh, it's not like uh, as a curse. It's just <laughs> describing an age. Yeah. It actually, I heard that uh, in Hebrew, it became now more politically correct to say the word zaken, mm -hmm. old, um, because it has a biblical meaning, which is um, a very yeah, wise person, smart person. Our colleague Etty, Esther Shelley Newman, actually told me that. She's like, why don't people just say old person? Yes. I'm, I'm old, that's yes, what she said. Yes, and she's, she's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been to a conference, and it was, you know, it was the first panel in the conference, why should we go back to the world Zaken, old? Yeah. So uh, it's important to say that. So yes, I, I do research among old people in East Jerusalem. Again, this is uh, my field site, also in the postdoc. 
I'm, I'm focusing on Dar el Hawa, Uh, neighborhood in East Jerusalem. It's the pseudonym of the neighborhood, just in order to keep their uh, uh, privacy, my informant's uh, privacy. Um, actually, the main question is how people who are non-native digital, how do they use a smartphone? What is the meaning of such usage in their life? This is the main question that uh, I'm investigating, and, and it's also important to say that I'm part of a, a larger research project. It's a comparative anthropological research that uh, UCL, University College of London, is involved with under the guidance of Professor Daniel Miller. Who we mentioned at the beginning also. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Other people did the same thing as I did, other researchers in Japan, China, Italy, Ireland, Uganda, Cameroon, Chile, and Brazil. So we all did 16 months of fieldwork, ethnographic fieldwork among old people uh, in uh, different field sites. So uh, the issues that uh, we came across with is that people are actually in many places specifically in East Jerusalem, from what I saw, if you're above 60, 65, it will be very difficult for you to use apps, like health apps or even the built-in apps of the smartphone, for example, how to count steps, uh, something that is very um, um, basic, intuitive, intuitive uh, for all of us, it will be very difficult for them to use. They don't know, they don't know about it, etc. I also came across two kinds of illiteracy. So I would say it's digital skills illiteracy. So just, you know, how to use my smartphone, which I uh, speak in a minute about, but also uh, the language perspective. Uh, I see. So some... Because their phones are not in Arabic? Some... You can change the language into Arabic, but when, for example, you want to use um, the health clinic app, okay, we try, I try to do that with them because it's part of the ethnographic approach. It's just to be, you know... Hands-on. Yeah, to be there and yeah. to, to try the things on your own. Mm-hmm. So even if you do have Arabic, some of the features are in Hebrew, and the minute the Hebrew comes in, Um, either it's very stressful. It's Chinese to them. <laughs> exactly. It's Chinese to them. Thank you. That's very... But it's also... Yeah. It's, either it's very stressful and then the stress is double because it's stressful even just to touch the phone because your finger it doesn't touch the screen correctly and then you start clicking on it very strongly and then you close the app yeah. and ev- you mess everything. So it's... Um, It's double illiteracy, yeah, it's I'm, double I'm, stress. I'm thinking here about the concept of intersectionality, mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, when different variables sort of intersect, uh, it brings you to more to a more difficult position. So here we have sort of intersectionality of uh, low digital skills yeah. that, you know, older people have in Israel too, but then together with uh, intersectionality in terms of language, not speaking the dominant language. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, Then we go back again to the point that we started this conversation with, which is the uh, geopolitical context. Yes. Because in my uh, field site, Dar el Hawa, um, you have two kinds of uh, population. What, what do I mean by that? You have people who stayed in the Israeli side of Jerusalem right. okay, after the 1948 war. And then you have people who were... Um, again, occupied, annexed, whatever, joined um, after the 1967 war. So you have a gap 
in terms of their legal status, their, their legal status. status, but also their uh, socialization and integration with the Israeli society. Right. So the language barrier, for example, is, is also among you know, uh, my informants. So it's not just, for example, uh, he native Hebrew right. speakers right. versus Arabic, uh, native Arabic speakers, but also Arabic versus Arabic speakers. Uh, so yeah, that is the age perspective. Uh, what I also really like in this research um, is that it has a practical side. We all, you know, were obliged to think during the fieldwork how can we contribute to the field site, yeah. but a practical contribution. So beside writing, um, you know, the monographs and papers and thinking about new concepts and new theories about smartphones, um, we also had to think about a project that we're going to do. So in my field site, it was very obvious quite from, quite from the beginning that I would like to to create uh, a course of how to use your smartphone. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, uh, just a week ago, I finished 15 sessions, a long-term workshop. Wow, 15. 15 sessions, three hours each session for 15 participants from the field site at the community center with uh, a Palestinian instructor. I was her uh, assistant. And we, we just did a really lovely how to use your smartphone course. Wow, and that's crazy that you need 15 sessions to do what, you know, usually it, seems to us just intuitive, right? It you wasn't, don't need to learn it. It wasn't enough. Yeah, even, wow. Even everyone holds a smartphone for a long time and they know how to write on WhatsApp. They yeah. have a very active WhatsApp group mm -hmm. uh, for the elderly club at the community center. Mm -hmm. They write a lot, you know, 5 a.m. in the morning. I'm in the WhatsApp group, so oh. I'm, I'm, I'm part <laughs> of it. Hopefully it's unmute. It's unmute because at 5 a.m. you receive many uh, blessings, good morning blessings <laughs> and prayer blessings. Uh -huh. um, so it's very active. And of the course, digital muazin on WhatsApp. <laughs> um, in a way. I'm, I'm referring to a concept in one of Maya's uh, earlier papers. Yes, that we wrote together mm -hmm. about Al-Aqsa yep. and Facebook. Uh, in a way, yes, it is. It's like a reminder every time, and it's a few Don't times pray. a day. Mm -hmm. But it's more than that, because they communicate with one another. And as you said, as you said before, there is a good participation. Yes. So what I see in this WhatsApp group is uh, a problem, you know, that touches every senior citizen in the world or every old person in the world, mm -hmm. which is loneliness. Mm. You can get lonely sometimes. Yeah. And the WhatsApp actually easiest or... Um, Ameliorates. <laughs> reduces. Reduces. The lonely, the lonely feelings that an old person might have just right. because, uh, you know, the kids are not at home. Maybe they live far away. Maybe they don't take care of the grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, there is another group. Um, that uh, you just you communicate with. So I agree with you in that manner that there is good participation. Mm. So it's more um, social one rather than a political one. Yeah. In my case. Yeah. Good point. Um, yeah. So I'll just mention really briefly that you know I'm I'm looking at the age uh, variable from the other side because I look at at youth, and you know we usually think of youth as being the most uh, digitally literate. 
but they use social media in very different ways than adults. And I think sometimes as adults, when we look at what they do, it's almost illegible to us. We can't understand what it is that they're doing. Uh, so they're both using different platforms than adults. Uh, for example, for, uh, for young people, uh, who's the audience for Facebook? Do you know? who uses Facebook when you ask an 11-year-old? Grandparents. Yeah, old yeah, people. Yeah. Old people use, use Facebook. It's not even just, you know, mom and dad or my teacher. It's, yeah, it's my grandparents, my uncle and aunt. And, you know, they have these jokes about people who will write a post and then they'll sign, love grandma. Uh, right? So young yeah. people are not on Facebook anymore. Um, the really young ones are not even on Instagram anymore. Uh, they have, you know, they always look for the new platform where the old people aren't. So a few years ago, that was Instagram. Today, for uh, the younger participants, uh, I'd say TikTok is the up-and-coming uh, platform uh, that they use. Uh, but besides different platforms, they also have different preferred modes of expression. Uh, so we can take a look at, you know, a young person's uh, TikTok, for example. And for us, it will just be, as we said before it's Chinese to them. So it will be Chinese to us. We can maybe understand the words that they use, but we don't understand, you know, why is it that they use only emojis? What are these stupid, you know, practical jokes and all these, you know, the, the same letter over and over again, or the, you know, 100 uh, exclamation marks and so on. Uh, young people do a lot of use of popular culture, lots of jokes and a lot of humor. And that's the way that they express themselves even around politics. So even if they're expressing their political opinion, uh, they'll use these same, uh, these same resources. And uh, my colleague, uh, Joanna Literat um, from Teachers College Columbia and I uh, have been uh, looking at empirical examples of that. And conceptually, we've called this phenomenon collective political expression. Um, so we are thinking about how uh, young people, but not only, use shared symbolic resources like popular culture to connect uh, to an imagined audience. And just uh, a short note about this, this idea of the imagined audience. So we talked about this a little bit, that when we write uh, on social media, sort of like when we're talking here in our um, little radio studio, we don't know who our audience is. We have no idea who's listening to us, um, who our message is reaching. And so we're, in a way, talking to an imagined audience. Collective political expression is sort of this combination of broadcast mode and interpersonal communication. Uh, and um, since you don't know who you're actually communicating to, you're imagining an audience. Often you imagine um, an audience who is like you, because that's easier uh, for us, although we don't know who our actual audience uh, will be. Uh, and I just want to give one sort of uh, funny example of how young people use uh, shared symbolic resources uh, for political expression. Uh, Joanna and I have a study that looks at uh, political expression on TikTok around the 2016 election. Um, and a lot of young people, for example, do remixes there of Trump singing, uh, you know the song from Frozen, do you want to build a snowman? Yeah. So they have, do you <laughs> want to build a wall? <laughs> nice. Uh, yes. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot. Of, I didn't um, know TikTok is from 2016. Uh, so TikTok, it was actually at the time it was Musical.ly. Uh -huh. um, and now it's called TikTok, but it's the same platform. Uh, and Musical.ly started in 2014. So yes, in, 20, in the 2016 election, we see quite a lot of uh, youth engagement around politics on TikTok. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we see how these shared symbolic resources are used in a humorous way, uh, but it also expresses a political opinion. They're often expressing, uh, sometimes it's a critique of Trump, sometimes it's, it's praise of Trump, sometimes you don't know what it is, <laughs> but it is definitely political expression. Mm -hmm.
So the 2016 election in the U.S. is really sort of a, an important turning point in our story about political expression and, and social media. But I want to take us from the U.S. context back to the, um, to the Israeli context and even the very local context of uh, East Jerusalem that we started off with. And this brings us to a joint project that Maya and I uh, are working on. Uh, and this is together with collaborators from Germany, from um, the Free University of Berlin. I'll just mention their names uh, quickly because we love working with them. Uh, Professor Dr. Barbara Fetch and Professor Dr. Annie Waldherr and Dr. Daniel Meyer and Daniela Stoltenberg are very uh, valiant collaborators. And this project examines the role of social media in mobilization, focusing on Twitter. And we're dealing with elections here, but we're move, moving from national elections to municipal elections. Uh, so we're looking at the uh, election in, in Jerusalem that took place in 2018. And specifically, this is interesting because of the context of East Jerusalem Palestinians. Yeah. So Maya, what is the dilemma here with East Jerusalem Palestinians and uh, voting in municipal elections? Yeah, so not getting in, again into uh, you know many details, but just we will, uh, we will say that basically from 19... 1967 till the latest municipal elections, East Jerusalem Palestinians took a collective decision not to take part. And what do we mean by, by not taking part? So even though they they're don't, entitled to vote, exactly. they don't vote. They choose not to vote yeah. uh, in, the, in the municipal election to the municipality of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. um, so as you said, they have the right to vote in the municipal election as opposed to the Israeli parliament election. Where they can't vote. Yes, where they cannot vote. Um, so this is a collective choice, obviously a political one, um, that goes on for many, many years. Yeah. Um, so we were thinking about this unique uh, situation, this unique case of uh, people having a right to vote, which is sort of, as we think in uh, Western, uh, you know, um, Democratic thought. Western democratic thought is the ultimate right, right, right of a oh, citizen. Or even a duty. And right? a duty. The ultimate duty of a as citizen. As a civil duty. Yeah. And here we see a different, uh, a different reaction to yeah. this right, um, which is actually boycotting the elections. We were thinking about this context and this unique situation, and we were also thinking about the concept of mobilization, because we all, you know, in the academic research and also... You know, in media, when you talk about social uh, platforms and networked platforms, you always speak about their power to mobilize people, mm -hmm. uh, either to participate in elections or in demonstration or in any other civil act, right? They can move us. We, we were thinking about the uh, Arab Spring, etc., yeah. although we can criticize this as well. Right. Um, so we we thought together about this concept of uh, mobilization, but actually what we started to understand after reading, you know, the tweets and all of that, and you will talk about it in a minute, I'm sure, uh, we actually thought, hey, wait a minute, we have a case here of Twitter as a platform that actually demobilizes people mm -hmm. and users. And the interesting thing is, um, Maya, you, you raised this idea of demobilization, and then we found that it's actually an existing concept in the literature. And we found literature that comes from a very different social context, from Germany, yes. that looks at demobilization as a process of um, social communication that actively promotes non-voting. Um, so uh, German researchers found that sometimes when you talk to non-voters, it doesn't lead you to vote, but rather it demobilizes you. And we took that concept and applied it to our uh, local context here. 
Um, so let's talk a little bit about the findings in, in this paper. Um, so I'll say that this is a, a mixed methods paper, and we did both a quantitative analysis together with our collaborators and also a qualitative analysis. Um, Maya, do you want to speak a little bit about the main trends that we found, uh, especially in the qualitative analysis in terms of the Hebrew-speaking corpus and the Arabic-speaking corpus? Um, yeah, so uh, generally speaking, I would say it's uh, the Hebrew corpus was encouraging people to go out and vote, mainly trying to mobilize Twitter users or other individuals just to, you know, go uh, fulfill your democratic right, your civil duty, as we said, and just vote in the municipal election. In contracts, uh, in the Arabic-speaking corpus, we saw demobilization processes, and we actually thought of two forms uh, of, of such demobilization, which is active one, literally saying out loud, right? Out loud on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> writing out loud, uh, don't vote. Voting is a betrayal. Don't do it. Um, Boycott the election. Uh, voting is recognizing the sovereignty of Israel in East Jerusalem, etc., etc. And there, there was also a form of indirect demobilization, which, you know, can just, we thought about it as just people are not talking about it. Um, in that manner, when you don't talk about something, it actually doesn't exist in many, many cases. So we thought that this sort of lack of participation or, um, or even just sharing other tweets about non-voting would be a sort of, of indirect demobilizations. Um, if you want to add anything about it, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll just also mention that um, that what we did in, in the paper using different methods is uh, we looked also at how um, the participation is structured by language. Uh, so we already talked here about language also as a context. And we found that when you look at the different languages, even though these people are in one shared local space, it's a completely different world. Their interpretation of the election is a completely different one. And this is what explains also their behavioral outcome. If you see uh, the election as a democratic festival, uh, the outcome should be, you know, go vote. But if you see the election as betrayal, as a part of normalization and so on, uh, it actually makes sense that the political outcome you'll decide is to boycott, uh, boycott the election. And in our discussion, we sort of discuss this dilemma and uh, also question how it can be uh, ameliorated with other political acts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, just maybe to add that it wasn't, um, you know, we weren't that surprised by it. Uh, it's a reflection of the reality yeah, of, I the, think of, of what's going on in, in the city specifically. Right, I um, think the, 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 the nice thing here about social media is that it enables us a window to understand these processes more deeply. So, of yeah. course, we know that uh, East Jerusalem Palestinians don't vote, uh, but it helped us sort of understand the active communicative processes that happen behind that. Mm -hmm. Why is it that they don't vote and how that's related to their interpretation of the election? Mm -hmm. Um, so we're coming towards the closure of, uh, of this podcast. So let's talk a little bit about um, so what's. I think sort of on a conceptual level, uh, the main idea here in our, all, in our whole discussion is that it's not enough to talk about social media doing 
X or um, even social media doing X to political participation, but rather if we want to understand how social media shape political expression and political participation, we have to be very, very aware of context. And uh, we discussed several contexts here. We discussed age, we discussed uh, social media platform, we discussed local contexts and ge geopolitical context. Uh, so we really encourage uh, people thinking about these issues um, to have a lot of nuance when they think about these different um, variables. Uh, Maya, so what's in the future for you? Where are you going with this research? Okay, so I'm currently writing uh, a monograph, a book, uh, hopefully to be published in UCL Press about aging with smartphone in El Quds, uh, Jerusalem. Um, and... This is uh, supposed to be in the near, uh, you know, the near future. But also, um, as I said earlier, what I like in this project uh, is that it has a practical side. So I'm hoping uh, maybe uh, to think of a mutual project of um, expanding accessibility to old people uh, within the government with, uh, for example, uh, governmental apps or uh, mobile health um, by the government, etc. And um, in a month or so, I'm having a meeting, a workshop. You are invited as well, Neta, mm -hmm. as you know, um, with representative from the government, from the uh, digital offices in the government. We're trying to work with the Israeli public and with um, minorities groups in the Israeli society. So that's in the near future. Yeah, yeah. and I'm lucky to have you... Uh to work with you, Maya, because you remind me of the practical implications, because I'm usually not so practical. I'm more around the Th theory that's and That's why the conceptual. We, work, uh, we work good together. That's true. And, and what's for you? What's, what, what, what are you hiding in your uh, future? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, as usual, I'm uh, engaged in about 10 million projects at the same time. But some of the projects that I'm uh, interested in working on now, I have a project around uh, political expression on different platforms around a, um, a very contentious uh, uh, case in uh, Israeli politics, which is uh, uh, the shooting in Hebron by soldier Laura Zaria. Um, I talked a little bit about my project about misinformation on WhatsApp groups and avoiding misinformation. And I also have a comparative research uh, on political talk that I'm very excited about that looks at how, how people engage in political talk in five different countries. So I'm busy, and Maya, you're busy as well. Yes, we are busy. <laughs> and sort of as a closing uh, question or thought, I was wondering... If you think that we're lucky that we're in this time when there's so much to study around social media and politics, I feel like every day the world is giving us interesting new problems to study. Yes, um, I think we are very lucky, um, both as uh, academia women, <laughs> um, but also as individuals. We have, as you said earlier, we have a window um, to understand uh, groups, people, activities around the world but also around us yeah. some things that were maybe you know you just never heard about or uh, or people are all of a sudden very close to you so um yeah i feel i'm very lucky thank, thank you, you Maya. thank you netta and thank you imagined audience for listening yes <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the smart family institute our producer and editor artsli shawan and oli dwol with help of the director of the Mount Scopus Radio Studios, Moti Barakan. Special thanks to Idana Meet Danhi for recording the opening and closing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Smart Podcast. 
You can find us at the Smart Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next episode, stay home and stay smart. Thank you.